This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. And then there is the big daddy of them all, 267 Marietta Street, the Thebus Warehouse. Marietta Street. Today it runs right next to Centennial Olympic Park, center point of the 1996 Olympics, the Georgia Aquarium, and the Civil Rights Center. But back in March of 1969, when Thebus moved his growing adult empire down to Marietta Street, it was full of nondescript warehouses and loading docks. Thebus was making more and more of the peep show booths, up to 50 a week, and he needed a supply of adult movies to keep the profits rolling in. He didn't make the adult movies, so he relied on films from others for his peep show booths. Larry Ravine was a cinematographer in New York City, and he helped make many of the adult films that Thebus and others bought. One day, he was asked to fly to Atlanta for a pickup. Occasionally, Bob would ask me to be a bag man. And this one time, he asked me to fly to Atlanta and pick up $10,000 from a guy who I didn't know or didn't know anything about. And his name was Michael Thevis. Bob really trusted me to to fly down, pick up 10, 10 Gs in cash for him. It was a really nondescript building. There any sign, you know, I had a cab waiting for me, and I rang the bell. This raspy voice, this woman's voice, you know, she, she had a voice that could play a two-by-four. I said, well, is it? You know, and I, I said, I'm here, you know, I'm here from Bob Wolf to pick up some money. Laverne Bowden was the secretary there, and she was really Mike Thevis's right-hand person as far as, like, taking care of a lot of stuff. A middle-aged, red-headed, dyed red hair woman who sat behind a desk in the front of, uh, wasn't even an office. She had a perfume that was like Bugsbury. And I hear this voice come over. He sounded like Eddie D. All these guys sounded alike. It was like central casting. Somebody had gone over his voice with a wood rasp or something. There's a guy here from New York, says to pick up some money, and he said, make him wait. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. There's no place to sit down, there's nothing. It was a grungy, oh man, no windows, no nothing, you know. So like a little um, almost dead fluorescent light that was like, it kind of reminded me of like a heartbeat. It was like flickering on and <laughs> At this point, I was getting a little a little nervous. I walk in, and there's a, a room, and there's two guys in it. Thevis was, like, stocky, was bald, of Greek extraction, and another guy who looked like he was sort of an escapee from Brooklyn, the way he dressed. He had a pullover, one of those um, Italian knit pullover shirts. They didn't shake hands or say hello or anything. They just had, there was a desk there. When they plopped this brown bag down, the dust flew, flew out. So they dumped the money out on the table and said, count it. Now, I'm supposed to count $10,000. 
five, tens, twenties, and a whole lot of singles. We don't want nobody saying that we stiffed you any money. I had never, like, handled money like that. I feigned that I, that I was like, it doesn't look like it's all here. I left and went back to New York. This is interesting, you know, how times have changed. This was uh, 1972. You just go to the airport, you buy your ticket there, you get on the plane. There's no any kind of TSA or any of that stuff. But I did have this $10,000 in cash. So when I was riding to the airport in the cab, I thought, you know, I don't want to be, you know, handling this bag. What if the bag breaks? Or what if somebody says, what do you got in the bag? I stuck it in my underwear. Trending at the time was a, a leather Irish hat. It had a very tall top to it and a brim around it. It was leather. So I had money in that. I had money in, in my pockets. I had money everywhere. All this money. And I flew back to, to New York. That was my one and only experience with Mike Thevis. Every leader needs a number two, a second in command, someone they can trust through thick and thin. Who was the other man in the warehouse that day with Mike Thevis? That man was Roger Dean Underhill, Mike Thevis's number two. He was a trusted associate and friend. Reporter Paul Lieberman recalled Underhill's early days with Thevis. Roger Dean Underhill was a former football player, very powerful man. When you met with him, I don't know if people know the phrase, isometric exercises. Even while he's talking to you, he would push one hand down against the other to create tension and build his muscles. He'd gone briefly to uh, Michigan State University. He may have even played football there. He was a strong, wired-up guy. He, too, had a juvenile criminal record. He had talent as a locksmith. And supposedly, Phoebus originally hired him to help with locksmith work and other related security matters. And then it turned out he had some talents, and Phoebus employed him to help construct his own machines, the ones that had these great money counters in them and good lock boxes. At the same time, this wired up, powerful Underhill, by his own description, was a classic henchman. He was an enforcer, and he carried out muscle work. Underhill was loyal and rose in Thebus' company ranks to more important roles. Thebus even made him part owner of the peep show businesses. Thebus and Underhill grew this business, leasing, not selling, their machines to newsstands. There was simply more money to be made by leasing. Thevis's company got half, and the newsstand owner got the other half. Underhill was also a familiar face with the Thevis family, when both families spent time together, away from work. Tony Thevis recalled the good times the families had together. My memories of them as a child uh, is of the Underhill family and my family a few times going to the river at, on the Chattahoochee River and having picnics and things like that. Um, and Roger Underhill, I, I have a distinct memory of him when I was probably six or seven. Um, I was choking on some food, and he saved my life literally in the kitchen of our house. So obviously I appreciate him for doing that.
Tony also remembered the times his father and Underhill worked together on the early peep shows, taking what was originally designed for cartoons and converting it to the adult movie peep shows. He did claim that he invented it. Um, I have read where it was a cartoon thing, but I, I do remember um, him and Roger Underhill discussing in great detail many times the peep show machines and transforming it into what it became. Thevis and Underhill were sitting right in the middle of the Wild West in the 1970s, pushing newsstands to lease their peep show booths all over the country, from California to Florida. Business in the sex industry was good. It seemed that lots of people, whether they wanted to admit it or not, couldn't keep their eyes away from movies, magazines, and peep shows. one of the last X-rated drive-ins in Jacksonville and running the projectors. What I saw coming in was just uh, everybody from your regular working people to uh, guys in business suits, driving expensive cars, preachers, people that had anti-pornography stickers on the back of their cars. You you could turn the lights on during intermission and you could count the number of church stickers you saw on on bumper stickers uh, at Playtime Drive-In when they were showing X-rated. This is Marty Hamrick. Not only did he run projectors for X-rated drive-ins as an adult, he also experienced the impact the industry was having in Jacksonville, Florida, at a very early age. Marty was only 13 years old when he started repairing some 8mm films that ran in Thevis' peep show booths in Jacksonville. We had a huge porn megalomart in Jacksonville at that time called the L. West Theater. And uh, I'm not sure if he owned the L. West or if it was... A place there he just leased his equipment to. But um, I became associated with that when um, there was a little uh, bookstore that I used to go into when I was a, a teenager. And this old fellow had a, an adult room and he had a uh, bookstore and a peep show that he was leasing for Beavis. And uh, they weren't, the films were in bad shape. He'd get about a dozen of them a month, and out of about a dozen of them, maybe three or four of them would play well all the way through. Otherwise, they'd get bound up or they'd break or something like that. And he wasn't able to get a hold of Thevis. Thevis wasn't returning his calls. He said he was always getting an answering service. And I happened to overhear this conversation between him and the courier who was bringing the films in. After a little bit of persuasion, I said, let me take a look at them and I'll see if I can repair these cartridges. It took me a little while because I was learning it by trial and error. And I used some of the facilities at the school and eventually I was able to repair them. He paid me to repair the cartridges. And the guy that I worked for, we called him Yeo. And uh, he had the little deep show. And basically what he said was he was coming on economic hard times and uh, this was a, a good little cash cow for him. I had to work on these films very surreptitiously. I worked on uh, partially at home and then partially at school because if I had been caught with any of that at school, it would have been just as serious as if I had been caught with drugs or, or weapons, which was going around at that time. They could uh, say, okay, we've cleaned up the pornography, and that was a big popular brownie point with uh, Baptists in that area. That's a very strong uh, Bible Belt area, so they... It was it was easy to get a bandwagon going for that. So it was an easy thing for politicians and law enforcement to go after. And uh, this guy, Yeo, eventually got busted. And uh, it happened. Uh, I had just repaired a bunch of films for him, and I was on my way over there. And when I came to the corner of 8th and Main, I was walking. And, it was, you know, like I said, it was, I was 13 at the time. 
the uh, the place was surrounded by cops, and all three television stations were there. And they were lo- unloading all the stuff out of his shop. They were confiscating everything. They had like three or four uniformed cops, and uh, that's when I decided to kind of try to make a discreet exit. And when I did, I turned around and I walked right into two uh, plainclothes Jacksonville Sheriff's Office detectives. And uh, they said, hey, were you about to go in there? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Can we talk to you? Got in the back of their car and I told them I didn't know anything about this adult stuff. And I, I showed them the books I bought, which was like a couple of science fiction books. And uh, it appeared on the news. When I got back home, I was talking to my aunt. She said, was this the stuff you were working on? And I said, yeah. Well, get rid of it. Well, it's got phone numbers on it from the Cinematics Corporation in Atlanta. And I had some of their little paperwork, even in some of the boxes that uh, the films came in. And uh, she said, well, you call whoever you need to call to get rid of those things. And don't go back into Yeo's anymore. Well, he still owes me $40. Well, that wouldn't be enough to bail you out of jail. It was like a little cloak and dagger thing, because I got the guy on the phone... And uh, I told him I was a student, and he was thinking I was a college or university student. And he wasn't too familiar with Jacksonville, and I said, he says, you go to JU? And I said, no, I'm in the eighth grade at the AV club. And he was a little silence for a while. He says, man, you're, you're really lucky they didn't catch you in with that, because Mr. Yeo would be in a lot more trouble than he already is. The incident left an impression on Marty years later. I wonder what Davis would have thought of if he knew that a 13-year-old kid was repairing his films. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Back in Atlanta, signs pointed to an explosion in the adult peep show business, and Thevis was determined to be on top. Thevis and Underhill were growing two new business ventures with a New York operation, forming Automatic and Cinematics. Automatic took care of running the peep show distribution in Atlanta, and Cinematics was responsible for the manufacturing of the machines distributed across the rest of the country. Thevis, Underhill, and the two New York partners each had a share and Underhill was working over 100 hours a week. Thevis would sometimes call Roger at 1 a.m. and say, What the hell are you doing down there? Get your ass home. Underhill was dedicated to his work, and he was loyal to Thevis. Underhill remembered standing in the driveway of the Thevis mansion on the day Thevis moved his family into the house. Thevis told Underhill that every quarter from the machines paid for the house, something that stuck with Underhill. But there was one man that sat right in the middle of the peep show business. That man, Nat Balin, had built a powerhouse manufacturing operation in Louisville, Kentucky, making peep shows at his business, Urban Industries. 
Like Phoebus, Balin claimed he actually invented the peep show, since he had also manufactured the cartoon versions of the booths well before the slide to adult movies. When I was a little kid, there was Urban Industries, and they were doing uh, coin-operated uh, cartoons. Uh, this is since the early 70s. And I uh, got into um, adult entertainment stuff, and so I switched over to the adult films. This is Rick Balin, son of Nat Balin. Looking back at that time, he remembered his father's business. This is from a commercial warehouse off of Pinewood Avenue. It had a nice wood shop in the back. I'm a carpenter cabin maker, and that's where I learned my skill. And uh, up front was where we did you know, projectors and electronic stuff. Um, it was a nice warehouse. I used to go down there and help. We would take movie projectors, 8mm movie projectors, and break them down and, and make them so they'd be continuous run. And I remember me as a little kid making little magazine brackets for the film, you know, for 25 cents a, a pop. Nat Balin sold the peep show booths for between $350 and $750, depending on the model. By 1969, Urban Industries was manufacturing between 500 and 900 machines per year, machines that had a patented design. And each of the territories needed something from Balin. New York did a handshake deal for 100 machines, and Michigan needed machines too. Thevis's Atlanta operation just couldn't keep up with Balin. Well, he was one of the people who was going to manufacture the peep show machines. Thevis didn't like that someone was selling machines to a provider. If you owned a bookstore and wanted to have peep shows, you probably would prefer that someone just sell you the machine. Thevis didn't like that. He wanted his cut. The competition was because Thevis leased his machines and Dad sold his outright. So I guess he was a little upset that Dad was taking over a little bit. Thevis and Underhill needed to do something about Balin's operation. On April 26, 1970, Underhill was ready to take a trip to Louisville. Underhill grabbed fellow employee Clifford Wilson for a road trip. Wilson jumped in the car, but didn't know where Underhill was taking him. Hours outside of Atlanta, Underhill finally told him they were headed to Kentucky. The back of the Ford station wagon Underhill drove was loaded with seven plastic containers. Underhill stopped off the highway to load all seven with gasoline. Wilson now knew the plan, and Underhill gave him $1,500 for the job. A third man, Robert Mitchum, joined Underhill and Wilson, flying in from out of town. Mitchum was not in good health, having recently suffered a heart attack. A few weeks earlier, Underhill had done his own scouting of the warehouse, showing up on a day when Balin was out of the office. Underhill told the girl working at the front desk that he was an interested buyer, and he asked to take a look around at the layout of the warehouse. The woman gave him the full tour, unknowingly helping Underhill plan out his upcoming trip. That night in Louisville was a comedy of errors. Under the cover of night, Wilson started off on the wrong foot by breaking the drill bit in the door lock, instead resorting to breaking in through the back window. Wilson stood watch as Underhill moved the peep show machines into the center of the warehouse and poured gasoline around the building. In a show of his own brute strength, Underhill picked up a 400-pound copy machine and maneuvered it into the pile. 
Underhill would later say they didn't want to tax Mitchum's heart, so he and Wilson did everything while Mitchum stood guard. We carried all the records out, copying machines, furniture, I guess things that looked like they would destroy the business. We could take every record we could find. We found large containers of paint, so we put everything in a great big pile, Underhill said. And I think I sat maybe some five-gallon containers in the thing. And I think they were plastic containers. Because I thought they would melt the plastic. And the thing would go poof like that. The gasoline covered the large pile. Mitchum said, let's really screw this guy. And he dumped paint all over Balin's desk and on the carpets in the front. The peep show machines were set to burn. As were the business records. But Wilson messed up again, accidentally turning on the lights while on the lookout. Underhill sent Wilson and Mitchum on their way. While he made sure the fire took off. They circled back to pick him up. Underhill said, in the area between the highway and the factory, looking at it from the backside, you know, was open. And we could see the flames coming out. We also heard sirens, and I heard later that the night watchman had seen the fire and called the fire department. The fire started, and Underhill and his crew quickly left, feeling like they had been successful in the plot to extract revenge against Balin. But it was Underhill who made the biggest mistake of the night. The fire department arrived on the scene and was able to quickly put out the fire. The latex-based paint, it seemed, helped kill the fire, not spread it. Oh, it didn't look bad. There was just, you know, the latex paint was everywhere on the floor. You know, and the smell of, you know, burnt. Most of the uh, warehouse, we had a bunch of chipboards. That's what we made most of the units out of and, uh, and laminate. I don't remember the smell, but I do know stories that Thebus did threaten my brother and I at one time, but my parents didn't tell me that until later, you know, in life. But yeah, he was a nasty guy. Nat Balin was not happy that thugs had broken into his warehouse. And even though there were no arrests in the case, he had an idea who was behind the arson attack. And Balin did lose business, including his customers in Michigan and New York. He was pretty sure Thebus was behind it. Roger Dean Underhill later said that he thought he could spread the fire by putting paint over the whole location. And it was latex paint, which is a suppressant, not a igniter. So, you know, they were not the, the greatest arsonists in the world. The funny thing was, Thebus, you know, burnt it down, but he, he tried to burn it down with latex paint. So his men weren't that smart. Underhill, not knowing that the fire had been extinguished so quickly, called Thevis, who wanted to know if the job had been successful. Thevis answered from his room at the Central Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles. Underhill bragged, Veni, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. Soon, another side of Mike Thebus would show its face. One of his former partners, a man whom Thebus helped get his start, was also a sore spot for Thebus. 
In the late 60s, Thevis and Underhill were introduced by a man from Miami named Kenneth Jap Hanna. But he wasn't Japanese. He was short and portly. He was balding, and he had glasses. They opened up stores together, and for a while, Thevis would open the stores and Hanna would close them at night. But the two would have a falling out. Hannah had begun to install peep shows in the back of his stores, supplied by Balin's company. Despite Thebus buying out Hannah earlier, Hannah had opened up some new stores. Hannah and Nat Balin were friends, having done business together in the past. Hannah was also going behind Thebus's back, taking his movies and selling bootlegs on his own. Mike Thebus lures this unsuspecting fellow to his headquarters, which are downtown Atlanta in a warehouse district. In the early hours of November 13, 1970, Thebus invited Hannah to come down to his office. He lured Hannah to the back of the warehouse, away from the main section of the office, indicating to Hannah that he had a new supply of hardcore pornography that he wanted Hannah to look at. This type of pornography wasn't being sold over the counter, so it was a hush-hush meeting. Hannah's taste for the darker aspects of porn was also his blind spot. Thevis cornered Hannah, telling him he was going to kill him. Hannah begged for his life, but Thevis shot him three times in the chest and the heart. When Hannah crumpled down behind the carts in the loading dock, Thevis walked up to him and shot him once more, right between the eyes to make sure he was dead. Roger Underhill later recalled the conversation he had with Thevis that morning. Thevis called Underhill and told him to come to work immediately. Underhill was usually there bright and early, but he had worked late the night before and was exhausted and still at home when Thevis called the house. Thevis asked, How come you're late? Underhill said, I worked very late last night. I've got this eye injury, and I've just been exhausted. And I slept a little late this morning. Thevis then said to Underhill, Well, get your ass down here. There are some machines coming from Los Angeles last night. They're crated up, and they're in the way of the loading dock. Underhill rushed out of his house and arrived at the warehouse. He went in through a side door. Thevis told him, I just killed Ken Hanna before I called you. His body is across the street in the warehouse. I threw the body in the trunk, but I forgot. The keys to the car are still in his pocket, and I can't get the car out of the warehouse. So Thevis lures him there supposedly to get a supply of magazines. That's the story. Pull up to the loading dock, and as Underhill tells it, Thevis shoots him puts him in the trunk of his own car, locks it, and then realizes the keys are in the dead man's pocket, has to call Underhill, and Underhill comes, locksmith talent, opens up the trunk, they get the keys, Underhill takes possession of the gun, as he says, and Thevis drives the car to the airport. Underhill, being a pro locksmith, was enlisted to open the back trunk of the car. The car belonged to Jap Hanna, and eventually Underhill pried open the trunk with a series of tools. When Underhill opened the trunk, he saw the body of Jap Hanna. He touched his hand, and it was cold. 
There was a bit of blood. Thevis reached in to retrieve the keys. Thevis said to Underhill, Well, what am I going to do with this body and this car? Underhill replied, Well, if I were you, I'd park it in a big parking lot, some place where it wouldn't be found for a while. Thevis said, The Atlanta airport would be a good place to put it. It wouldn't be noticed. Underhill grabbed a hat and a fake mustache, one he had used before as a disguise when checking in on stores for employee thefts. Thebus put on the disguise and drove to the airport in Hannah's car, with Hannah still in the back. Underhill followed in a different car. Underhill told Thebus he had blood from Hannah's body on the side of his pants. Thebus came back later, wearing another suit. And they still had the gun that Thebus used to kill Hannah. Underhill purchased a welding torch outfit, his protection while he melted down the gun. Thebus also pulled some Mexican coins off Hannah's body. Odd-shaped coins Hannah used at payphones to get out of paying. He added them to the mix of items to melt down with the gun along with the screwdrivers used to open up the back trunk. That night, Underhill drove his truck out to the Chattahoochee River. And dumped the melted materials, including the gun, into the river. Three days later, Hannah's gold Cadillac was found at the Atlanta airport, with Hannah still in the trunk, and a single coin placed on top of his dead body. Atlanta PD said, I'm afraid it's going to be very difficult to prove who killed this man. While the police had their suspicions that Mike Thevis might have been involved, Thevis later said he had learned of Hannah's death on television. Nat Balin's warehouse was set on fire. Jap Hanna was shot right between the eyes. Though signs seemed to point to Thebus, he was not arrested. But he was ever aware of the eyes, focusing in on him and his business. Today, police pursue the angle that Hanna's dealings in Atlanta's pornography business led to his death. This morning, Lieutenant C.J. Strickland questioned Mike Thebus man who's been called the kingpin of Atlanta's smut industry. Thebus is believed to be the last person to have seen Hannah before his death. Thebus and his Maryland attorney Bob Smith faced reporters after this morning's 90-minute session. So far as I know, they've given no indication they have any further desire to talk with him. Did you answer most of the questions or did you talk? Invariably. Mr. Mr. Thebus answered the questions fairly and candidly. Uh, we met with Lieutenant Strickland and several other uh, officers with the Homicide Division. Mr. Thevis answered the questions as candidly and as honestly as he could. Uh, we're generally fishing, apparently, for speculation, which is the same that uh, one can read in the newspaper kind of thing. What type of speculation? That this was uh, a murder committed uh, maybe over competition in the adult book business? No, it didn't seem to relate to that to any extent at all. What were they trying to, to suggest to you? 
They wanted to know what suggestions that Mr. Davis uh, would have in this regard, and of course he doesn't know. I think the whole thing is pretty ludicrous. Uh, I don't have any knowledge as to what happened to uh, Mr. Hanna. He was a personal friend of mine, and I just think it's a terrible tragedy. that are in the smut industry, by and large, almost every one of them have previous criminal records. And they are in an industry that I would have to categorize as being a racket industry, much the same as the gambling uh, racket, uh, much the same as the lottery racket, much the same as the bootleg liquor uh, racket. I think it is a racket type of operation. And in rackets, you, it's quite common to see uh, one racketeer snuff out another racketeer. I think probably the type of business that Mr. Hanna was in had something to do with his death. Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hope, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself, Jasmine Cross, and Stephen Warner with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. The Old Days Are Gone, performed by Law and written by Steve Acker. Originally released in 1975 by GRC. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Chevy Van, performed and written by Sammy Johns. Originally released in 1973 by GRC. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Jefferson Lee, performed and written by Sammy Johns. Previously unreleased. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit GangsterHouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.